May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I read this little essay this week by this fellow called um, Peter Bregman, and it had to do with the tension between high expectations on one end and low expectations on the other. You know, the sort of tug that we feel between having um, too high or too low of expectations. And I thought about, you know, a lot of places, you know, parenting is a place where this works out, right? Like, if you have too low of expectations for children, then, you know, they'll certainly live up to them. And if you have too high of expectations, it can be overburdening to them, you know? And and so in places like schoolwork and sports and, you know, friendships, uh, parents want their children to excel in academics and athletics and, and in relationships. And so they usually do hold up high expectations in these areas. But we know that they can go too far, right? And and a parent that um, you know who berates his or her daughter for getting an A minus, or you know the the father who who berates his son on the sideline for missing a tackle, you know that we've seen that that's just too far. That's taken it too far, and how those unrealistic expectations kind of get out of hand. And this fellow Peter Bregman, who was writing this article, talked about him, himself, and he was buying a new bicycle, apparently a very expensive bicycle, and he was trying to decide what color to get. And he was laboring over the color of the bicycle and couldn't make a decision about this. And, and he talked about how silly it was that he just couldn't, like, pick a color and go with it, you know. And, and he would try to envision himself on a, on a red one or a silver one or whatever. And then, you know, like, how, how would he feel about that? And, and just being paralyzed about this silly little decision. And he talks about laying in bed at night thinking about this. And then all of a sudden he has this epiphany. He begins to think about his daughter and how sometimes he had held up too high of expectations for her. And here's what he wrote. He said, As I lay awake, feeling the, same, feeling the shame of my ineptitude over not being able to pick a color, I began to think about my daughter. She can have difficulty controlling her impulses, and she falls quickly into conflict with friends. How often have I scolded her or given her unsolicited or pushy advice, annoyed that she acted the way that she did? I assumed that if she wanted to, she would change. But from the vantage point of my own struggle, I realized how wrong I'd been. My daughter is doing the absolute best she can, and my judgment of her behavior or her only makes her feel, only makes her feel and behave worse. And that's when it hit me. My expectations of everyone, including myself, are counterproductively high. He goes on to say, you know, let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. We do need to have reasonable expectations, but that's what they ought to be. They ought to be reasonable, not unreasonable expectations. There are such things as reasonable expectations, right? I mean, a man and a woman who stand before a church and for their family and friends and vow lifelong fidelity, there's a reasonable expectation on behalf of both of those partners that the other will keep that promise. A person who signs a contract to go to work for a company... That company has a reasonable expectation that a man or woman will fulfill their task. They won't give away trade secrets. They won't work for the the competitor against them. I remember when I was a a teenager, I worked in a grocery store, and and they would remind the employees that they should buy their groceries from that grocery store. After all, they shouldn't go and support the competitor. The Constitution of the United States gives the citizens of this country a reasonable expectation of privacy. That the government cannot just barge into your home or, or go through your car without having some reasonable expectation of, of some sort of nefarious behavior. One more. I drove to Vermont two weeks ago. 
I went to see my son Nicholas, who's working there. Benjamin, my, my son, went with me. So the two of us drive over to Vermont. And we're in Vermont, and the kid has to work during the day. So he's a farmer, it's harvest season, he's busy. So Benjamin and I were left to find our own fun during the day. And, um, and so we're exploring around Vermont. There's not a lot to do in Vermont. You know, there are a lot of leaves there. But um, anyway, Ben and Jerry's is in Vermont. And I'm like, oh, this is a must-do, right? And so, um, and so Benny and I head up to Ben and Jerry's, and, uh, and we, we're going to do the tour. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ben and Jerry's is ice cream. Okay, so we go to this, uh, this ice cream plant, and, and we're going to do this tour and kind of hanging around, waiting. And, and you know, uh, eventually they kind of get the tour underway, and we're going through. And, and, um, and I don't know what you would think, but for me there was one expectation that at the end of this tour, there would be ice cream waiting for me, right? And hopefully it would be free. That would be even better, but there should be ice cream waiting at the end of the tour. And we go through the tour, and it wasn't too long or too boring. It was fun. Um, And we go in, and they said, we're going into the tasting room. Oh, yes, that's what I'm talking about, the tasting room. Any room I wanted to be in in that plant, the tasting room ranked right up at the top of the, the list. And so we go in, and, 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 and by the grace of God, there I was at the very front of the line uh, for the tasting room, you know. And, and Benny and I were there next to each other, and there were about 50 people in this tour, and we were kind of crammed in this room. And, and the young woman who's given us the tour gives us a few preliminaries, talks about what the room used to be, and so on and so on. And while she's talking, and I'm not paying really good attention because I'm looking for the ice cream, um, I see a sign, a small sign, you know, it's about the sheet size of a sheet of paper, and it says, um, today's flavor, broccoli and cheese. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I'm like, oh, no, no, Benjamin, look at this, broccoli and cheese ice cream, you know, and, and so the young woman finishes her little spiel, and she says, oh, and today's flavor... Broccoli and cheese. And around the whole room, everybody's like, oh, you know. I have one reasonable expectation, and that is that you bring me not just ice cream, but tasty ice cream, you know, something delicious. And uh, and after a few minutes, she says, oh, that's only a joke. Really, the flavor is strawberry shortcake. Oh, I'm so relieved, you know. This is, this is what I was looking for. A reasonable expectation. The prophet Isaiah is a preacher. That's really what he is. If you read through the book of the prophet Isaiah, what you're really reading, excerpts of his sermons, sometimes poems that he would construct, a little bit of narrative and history, but largely he's preaching and he's a preacher. And and, and so you get sort of the the feel of it. Isaiah is a fiery preacher. He's, um, He's consumed with passion for the Lord. He wants people to know that there is only one God in the universe, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he is high and lifted up, and there is none other like him. There is no comparison nowhere in all of the universe that the God of Israel is the God of the world. And, and since that's the case, there is no worship of any other God. He won't tolerate it. He has no, no time or space for it. And because of that, if we trust in the Lord as the people of God, then we don't trust in the things that other people trust in. There are bully nations all around Israel. Israel is this tiny, tiny little nation. And there are these superpowers to the north and to the, to the east. And they are putting heavy pressure on Israel. Pay up. And if you don't pay up, we're going to come in and trample you. And Isaiah says, don't trust in your money. Don't pay those bribes. Instead, tell them, no, we trust in God. But, of course, the rulers of Israel are like, well, it's not that much. Let's just write the check, right? And it doesn't work. Eventually, Isaiah is right. 
Isaiah also sees in the future. He can tell where Israel's heading. And he talks about things like punishment that's coming. But one of the things Isaiah preaches about a lot are ethics for common, regular, ordinary, everyday people. Not not people who are up in the high political power, not people who are the ruling class, but the everyday Joe Bag of Peanuts, you know, follower of, of the God of Israel. What should people live like? What's it mean to live a good life? And that's what today's sermon is. Today's sermon from Isaiah, not just from Joe's sermon, from Isaiah's sermon, the little excerpt that we're reading, he's preaching to the people of Israel. But I want you to see something. Will you take your bulletin and, and look at that, that passage with me? Again, the Old Testament passage. Listen how he begins. It's in verse 10, the first verse in your, in your section there. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so Isaiah is saying, pay attention, the word of the Lord. And this is, the, the word for Lord here is Yahweh. Hear the, hear the word of Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. You rulers of Sodom, <laughs> give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. If you know, don't know your Bible, in, way back in, in the book of Genesis, there are these two ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were known as being places of violence and, and rejection of, of everything good, of selfishness and greed. Uh, they were people who, who destroyed uh, incoming people, did not welcome them as they should. And for this reason, God destroys these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their wickedness and evil. Isaiah is preaching hundreds of years later. The stories of Sodom and Gomorrah are well known. And he's calling the people of Israel... Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the first time you heard the phrase inflammatory speech? <laughs> this is exactly what Isaiah is doing. I mean, could you imagine this? He calling his own people, the people of God, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think Isaiah's mom probably sent him a note and said, Isaiah, you need to tone it down a little bit. You know, you're way over the top on this stuff. You know, you gotta, you gotta pull this in a little bit. Why is he saying this? Why is he he's speaking so harshly to him? Look at the next verse, verse 11. What to me, this is God speaking, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of, of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Wait, wait a minute. It, why are you doing this? Why are you making all these sacrifices, these sacrificial animals? Why are you offering them up in the temple on a regular basis? And I think the people of Israel would say, well, because you told us to. <laughs> this is the way we're supposed to worship. This is exactly what Moses prescribed. And you're saying that you're weary of them? That you're, 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 you, you don't want to tolerate them anymore? Why is that? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required this of you, the trampling of, of my courts. Well, you did, God. You're the one who required us to do this. You're the one who asked us to come here. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and, and excuse me, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates God says to his people, through his preacher Isaiah, no more. Stop coming to church. <laughs> That's what he says. 
What preacher said? No preacher I know has ever said stop coming to church. None, ever. Never. We call people, by the way, you know, it's been a while. Yeah, we, we urge you inward. The prophet Isaiah says, no more. I'm going to lock the doors. I can't take this anymore. I can't take this. Why? In fact, verse 15, look what he says. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Isaiah the preacher says, when you come to pray, God is going to go like this and like this. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes uh, when my sons would argue with one another, um, especially when they were in their more mature days, uh, they would um, do something like this. Like, mm, I can't hear you. You know, they would stick their fingers in their ears. This is what Isaiah says God is doing until the only thing that's going to change this, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your, de- remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Don't come to church <laughs> until you stop all this stuff. That's going on outside of it. Look at this. Learn to do good. Learn to do good. You know, saying learn to do something implies that you don't already know how to do it. (laughs) Isn't that what it's saying? And Isaiah is saying to the people of God, learn to do good. What does that look like? What does learning to do good look like? Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Justice, mishpat in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew. It, it has to do a lot with, with financial issues, you know, for people who are suffering, that you help them, that we help them, that we were, we're engaged in helping people who are financially destitute. And especially those who are the most vulnerable. Notice, widows and orphans. Taking care of the most needy people. Learn to do good to protect the vulnerable. When this happens, God says, then your sins, though they be like scarlet, will become as white as snow. There's a welcoming in. St. John in the New Testament says like this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And every Sunday, if we're not doing the Ten Commandments, we're doing a summary of the law, our Lord Jesus is saying to us in this church, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. This is the whole of the law right here. The point of all this, that God has reasonable expectations for his people. Reasonable expectations. And as true as it was in the 8th century B.C., it is today. Which means to us this. The most important part of our worship is not the music or the sermon, the elegance of the readers, the quality of the building, you know, whatever else. It's not that we make sure we have the glory of Patri in the right place right after the song, though I like it there. It's not that we do none of this. The most important part of our worship is what happens from the time we leave here to the time we arrive. The Eucharist is about the whole of life. And so the, it, it, the, the service isn't over. You know when we leave, the service isn't over. Go in peace to do what? Love and serve the Lord. Right? 
Go in peace, the love and serve the Lord. The, the whole of our life is lived out. The Eucharist is one continual moment to moment that we're going and coming. Do justice. End oppression. Work hard to protect the most vulnerable parts of our society. Reasonable expectations that our lives are lives filled with goodness. And when that happens, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. That they'll be a welcome, a father's welcome. Come, let us reason together. Because these are very reasonable expectations. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.